0: Chapter 18, Summer of Joy. It did look too big. It sure looks bigger in reality than on paper, Princess admitted, as she stood outside the massive log structure that was soon to be their home. Sam had to agree. They had poured over the plans for months, moving walls, adjusting window sizes, moving bedrooms, shrinking, enlarging. It had been a happy yet frustrating experience for them both. Their backgrounds were so varied that their vision for the perfect home was quite different. Princess had been raised in a castle, literally. She had been waited on by servants, pampered beyond reason, spoiled, rotten, and indulged in every whim. Sam had been raised in a small home on a farm. He had worked hard, been taught discipline, temperance, sharing, and had received but few of his greatest desires. One would have thought that Princess would have wanted another castle home, and Sam a smaller, more functional home. However, it was an odd twist that this was not so. Sam wanted what he had never had, a large home with many rooms, secret passageways, a formal dining hall, and several garages. Princess wanted what Sam took for granted, closeness, love, family, and a strong sense of home. Since she had not found these things in her castle, she feared to move into another one. Their compromise had produced a home not entirely unlike the Swiss Hotel, with rough-hewn logs and crystal chandeliers. It looked comfortable, homey, and peaceful to her, and... Big and successful to Sam. Its rooms were small enough to be livable and large enough to be spacious. One side of the house was a four-bedroom home, not unlike any other. The other side was a collection of rooms not clearly defined in their purpose. They existed for the purpose of being, having, and living with excess. The rooms were appropriately connected by a hidden hall and cleverly crafted secret doors. One room could only be entered through the secret hall. To add a splash of functionality to soften the sense of foolishness he felt, Sam also made the secret hall the quickest and safest way to leave the big home in the case of a fire. This was the unused east wing in his castle, and he valued every empty square inch. Princess decorated the livable part of her home in warmth, lace, and love. His side of the castle was rich, luxuriant, velvet, and crystal. It suited them, and they could afford it. Their log mansion sat beside beautiful Lake Helen on one end of a 20-acre paradise of dense birch forest. Sam had the area around the home cleared and planted in grass and formal gardens. Princess had the grounds near the lake cleared of underbrush, planted in grass, and left on its natural beauty. She also had sand hauled in for a small beach and had a boat dock built. Walking from one end of the house to the other, one passed from exquisite formal gardens to lush grasses and virgin forest. All of it pleased them both and symbolized their jigsaw puzzle love. Sam had an airstrip cleared near the house, bought a single engine plane, and immediately began studying for his pilot's license. In 1976, Alaska had more private aircraft per capita than any other place on Earth. With its low altitude, cool dense air, and vast expanses of unpopulated land, it made a perfect location for small aircraft. They moved into their new home October 31st, 1976, Halloween Day. Sam's entire family showed up to help them move. Even though they had been married just over a year, they had acquired a considerable array of possessions, especially when they decided to build the log castle. They had purchased everything they felt might go well in their new home. They were both amazed at how much of it was junk that had no real place in their new abode. A light snow fell most of the day, as they unloaded the big truck. They backed the truck into the large garage and had a warm place to unload the boxes. They carried them down the ramp of the truck, up two steps into the laundry room, through the family room, past the kitchen and dining room, into the spacious living room. Sam was regretting the size of his log home before he carried the last box inside. While the men finished the last of it, Princess and Sam's mother slipped away to make a treat. Mom had previously made an apple pie and Princess prepared some red bush tea, also known as rubo tea in Africa, to go with it. Sam's family had all come to appreciate the tea's rich herbal flavor. Apple pie was unknown in South Africa and Sam's knowledge had never been served with and to Sam's knowledge had never been served with red bush tea. They found that the two made a delightful combination. It was nearly midnight before everyone left, and Sam and Princess flopped down exhausted on the big sofa in the main living room. They silently surveyed their accomplishments and were pleased. In all, they had come a long way, and it seemed wonderful to finally have a home of their own. In front of them, a natural rock fireplace stood two stories high. On either side of the fireplace were recessed bookshelves. On the opposite side of the room, a large grand piano sat majestically on an oval oriental rug. Another set of sofas surrounded the opposite side of the piano. Various groupings of Victorian chairs were scattered around the room. The ceiling was high with large open beams. Beautiful woodwork had been laid diagonally across the beams. The effect was stunning. I am so tired, Princess mumbled. I think I'll go to bed. She smiled at him and levered herself to the edge of the sofa. I'll help you make the bed, he offered. He knew their bedding was still in boxes. "'That's nice, but your mom and I already did that. "'All I had to do is go pass out between the sheets.' "'Sam laughed and then sighed. "'When are you going to tell me?' "'Tell you what?' she asked innocently. "'Your big secret.' "'You mean about the diamond business?' "'No, about our family.' "'I don't know any secrets about your family.' "'You don't understand, my love. "'Yours and my family. Us.' "'Oh, do you think I'm keeping a secret from you?' "'She asked mischievously.' "'Either you are keeping a secret from me, or you don't know yourself.' "'Know what, you silly? What are you talking about?' "'Are you sure you want me to say it? I thought it was something women wanted to announce themselves,' he said in all seriousness. "'What are you talking about?' she demanded. Her curiosity piqued. "'Why, I'm talking about you being pregnant,' he said happily. "'I'm not. Yes, you are. If I was, I would know it before you. Why did you say that?' "'I say it because it's so.' You can be such a tease sometimes. I'm going to bed. Wait, he said, and caught up with her partway up the stairs. She received him happily and wrapped her arms around his neck. Princess, by nature, was a snuggly person and never seemed to tire of physical affection. It was another of her many virtues that had made Princess, made her priceless in Sam's heart. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. I watched my mom have four babies. Every time I knew she was expecting before she told the family, I could tell. "'How?' she asked, her head cocked to one side, her brow furrowed. "'Well, there's a different look about a mother-to-be. "'A new softness, a gentleness, not there before, kind of a glow. "'It's the way they walk and move, a new peace, "'almost a kind of reverence, I guess. "'For about a week I have been seeing that in you, "'and I have been wondering when you were going to tell me.' "'You amaze me,' she said, "'and since she was standing on a step below him, "'she kissed him on the forehead.' "'I guess a step above. (laughs) "'I have been feeling different and kind of sickish in the mornings. "'I actually have a doctor's appointment next Monday. "'You speak with great conviction about something that is unknown to me. "'Maybe you're right, maybe not.' "'I'm right,' he said with emphasis. "'Are you ready to be a daddy?' "'She asked, her face lowered a hint of pout on her lips. "'I can't think of nothing finer. "'What about you?' "'I'm not ready.' to become a daddy, she said, and laughed at her own joke. You've got to learn to keep a straight face, he said. I know, I'm working on it. To be honest, I'm scared. Of being pregnant? Well, that too, but mostly I'm scared of being a mother. Why? Because my mother died when I was young. Somehow I've always assumed that the same thing would happen to me. I can't I can see how you might come to that conclusion as a child, but surely, as an adult, you can see that your mother's death didn't set a precedent. Her circumstances were unique to her. There's no reason to believe that the same thing would happen to you. I know all of that, of course, but ever since I was a child, every time I thought of the day when I would have children, I had this feeling that life would end shortly thereafter. I suppose it may be a childhood delusion, but it's always been there. I guess I've ceased to question it anymore. Resignation and sadness was in her voice. She deeply believed what she was saying, and it disturbed Sam. You said children. Does this mean you think you will have more than one before you die? Well, yes, I guess. I've always thought that I would have several before I was called home. Okay, then, Sam said, acting much more cheerful than he had felt. This is baby number one, so nothing is going to happen. Before baby number two comes, we will work on your bad attitude about living. At any rate, I don't think that there's anything to it at all. "'Princess Brighton, somewhat. "'I know, it sounds silly, but I've told myself everything you just said, and it doesn't help. "'It's probably nothing, but it bothers me. "'Sometime appropriate. Will you give me a blessing? I'd like that.' "'I will, I promise,' he said, wishing there was something he could say to take away her fear. "'I just hope I'm a good mother,' she added seriously. "'I haven't had a role model. An English nanny raised me. "'She was wonderful to me, but not the same as a mother. "'I really want to be a good mother.' I can't imagine you being anything other than the perfect mother. I'll give you a pointer, though. Princess nodded. Sam paused for effect and then continued with exaggerated seriousness. The most important thing about being a great mommy is to pamper the new baby's daddy. Princess laughed. It was a silken, joyful sound. She stepped down to his level. Let's start your pampering right now. Melody had gone on to study music in South Africa. It was a tearful and frightening transition for her. This time she flew from Rhodesia with Marcia by her side. Their studies lasted approximately a year. After a brief visit to Rhodesia, they unpacked again and headed to England. Marcia's talent was technically superior to Melody's. Marcia's technique and prowess showed great promise, but for Marcia, uh, Marcia the violin was merely an instrument. Melody's music was charged with emotion. Her violin was far more than music. It was a love affair. She played with, some, with what some described as genius. Her instructors considered the missing technical skills something that could be learned, and her love for the violin divinely inspired. Hence, Melody showed greater promise and was courted by prestigious orchestras. Marcia studied until she met and married a warm and loving Englishman. Melody returned to Rhodesia after two years in England's finest music schools. Her timing was unfortunate, for she had returned on the exact day the rebels once again attacked their home. This time, however, her father, Donovan, was prepared. He had quietly purchased a small army complete with cannons, armored personnel carriers, with World War I vintage tank, and a considerable supply of small arms and ammunition. Melody had loaded guns for what seemed like days on end as her father and a few faithful friends defended their fortress-like home. On the sixth day of the attack, Melody fell asleep on the couch in utter exhaustion. All had traded turns, taking short naps, but the strain was most telling on her, and the father had ordered her to sleep. She awoke with a start to the feeling of someone nearby. Her eyes fluttered open to see her father kneeling beside her. Tears were streaming down his face. Yet, when he saw her awake, he quickly fumbled with something in his hands. She knew very well what it was. "'Daddy, I know you can't bear the thought of me being captured by the rebels, but I don't want you to kill me, even out of love, even if you know in your very heart of hearts that it's the best thing to do. Do you understand?' "'Oh, baby, I'm sorry you saw that,' he whispered and stroked a grizzled hand through her soft hair." During the night, they brought up an army tank. Until now, I thought we could hold out. It's only a matter of hours before the sun comes up and they attack. There's no way we can defend ourselves. Forgive me, precious one, but I couldn't bear to have them take you and and, and do things to me like they did to Mother and Marsha. She finished for him. He merely nodded without looking at her. She sat up and wrapped her arms around his neck, laying her head on his broad shoulder. Her He held her tightly and wept for not much more than ten seconds. With a sudden resolve so typical of him, he straightened, kissed her on the cheek, and smiled as if nothing was amiss. Melody was frightened by the sudden change. Daddy, I want you to listen to me. I know you have already decided to do what you think is unavoidable, but I want you to consider my words, then reconsider your decision. Will you do that? It's the least I could do, he admitted, still kneeling a short distance from her. She placed a soft hand on either cheek and kissed him on the forehead. "When I was on the train and you came to rescue me, do you remember that?" "I remember it bloody well," he said grimly. "There came a time when bullets were smashing into our cabin, glass was flying everywhere, and we could hear the rebels just outside our window. We knew it was but a few minutes before we could we would be captured, and then and they would begin. Well, you understand. I was certain I would be too late," he said with a grimace. At that moment, when we could not possibly survive, that Mormon missionary who has willed us, Elder Mahoy, Donovan supplied, Yes, Elder Mahoy gave me a blessing. You told me about it, but not with many details, honey. He wrote it down. It's actually fairly short. What it said, in essence, was that we would not be harmed by the attackers, but that it was a type of other trials that I would have in my life. The important part is that he promised me that when I survived them, all of them, including this one, do you see what I mean? Do you honestly believe what the blessing said? Her father asked intensely. I do, with all my heart. When he gave it to me, I felt a great warmth rush through me and a sense of peace I had never felt before. I felt that same peace now, Daddy, and I want you to honor my faith and not try to save me. by. She couldn't bring herself to say it. I have never felt such peace. I've heard others describe it, though. Your mother spoke of it. He seemed lost in memories for a moment. His eyes focused on distant scenes. He quickly returned his attention to Melody. I will make you a promise. Okay, she replied. I will wait until the rebels are actually in the house and coming for you. But I promise you, I will not let them take you alive. It's the best I can do, my precious child. I understand, Daddy, and I thank you for that. But there's one other thing I need you to understand, which is... If the rebels kill me, I will be dead. That seems apparent, he said, and chuckled with a dark humor. If you kill me, you'll be dead. What do you mean? As awful as it seems to both of us, for me to be tortured and killed, it would be much, much worse if you killed me, even to save me. My blood would be on your hands, and you would be not guiltless. I'm afraid you could not come where Mama and I would be, and that would be the greatest tragedy of all, she said emotionally. I'm afraid my hands are already stained with many people's blood, child. One more, as an act of mercy, couldn't make a difference. Melody persisted. Tell me, tell me what my heart already knows. Have you ever killed somebody except in the line of duty or in defense of what was rightfully yours? No, of course not, he attested. Then killing me would be an act of horrible, unforgivable shedding of innocent blood. Oh, daddy, don't you see? The Bible says a person who sheds innocent blood can't ever go to heaven. Please, Daddy, for your sake, for Mama's sake, for my sake, please rethink this, I beg you. Donovan's shoulders hung low, his face became a forsaken mask, and he hung in his head. She had never seen him so defeated. Even while he could not accept allowing his youngest daughter to be brutalized, he loved her too much to deny her this request. Unknown to her, he silently vowed to stay by her side until either they both escaped or both perished. It wouldn't be his bullet that spared her, but he would not draw his last breath until she had been spared in one way or another. It was a solution far too risky to give him any peace, and it cost him more courage than he actually possessed to agree to risk her so needlessly. But it was how it would be. He stood and looked down at her still sitting before him. I will do as you say, no matter how awful it seems. I will not interfere by taking your life. Then he added, I never break my word. "'Thank you, Daddy,' Melody cried with tears of gratitude. She jumped to her feet and embraced him fiercely. She held her—he held her for a moment, nodded, spun on one heel and marched away, barking orders as he stomped into the other room. During all this time, months of negotiations had been underway in Salisbury for the unconditional surrender of the Prime Minister Ian Smith's government to the new, communist-backed government seeking to take away—to take its place.' Ian Smith finally capitulated to stop the killing, and a truce was set in place. The so-called truce was nothing more than an unconditional surrender of the former British citizens to their indigenous neighbors, many of whom had chafed under the apparent unequal distribution of wealth. Now in power, their former employees began a systematic punishment of those upon whom they had relied for so many years for their welfare. Thousands of British farmers, business owners, owners of industry, and merchants were forced from their homes and businesses at gunpoint. Their daughters and wives were ravished before their eyes, their sons murdered, and they were either jailed or enemies of the state or executed on the spot. A week of relative calm came and went as the new government enacted laws, outlying persons of British descent from ownership of land larger than one acre, or building larger than 1,000 square feet. All other properties were immediately forfeit and subject to resettlement. All mortgages and financial obligations on the land were to remain the burden of the former owners, who would be jailed if they did not immediately pay in full, in cash. Food became scarce as they were taking over the vast farms and factories neglected to plant crops, or simply lacked the expertise to run the equipment. Famine loomed, the economy plummeted, and anger raged. Those in power loudly blamed the prior government of Ian Smith and by association, all of British descent, the mobs with the sanction and assistance of government truce began systematically killing their former employers. Thousands of former British citizens escaped across the border into neighboring Botswana, hoping to make their way into South Africa. Less than half of them made it. Surrounded on every side by hostile troops, Donovan and all with him were not able to sneak away. Through a, though a proud man and a stubborn and hard, as hardened concrete, he would have gladly abandoned all to spirit melody away to safety. The day following the enactment of these new laws saw the fiercest fighting yet. The tank was brought forward and fired three shells. One overshot the McIlvany house. The second blew away the whole south corner, killing two defenders, and the third blasted completely through the front of the door and out of the back without exploding. It left a three-foot hole in the front and a ten-foot hole in the back. Miraculously, no one else was killed. Inexplicably, they never fired the big gun again. Melody would never know what the fourth shell had only partially fired, killing the tank crew and jamming the shell in the barrel beyond repair. The shooting stopped suddenly about 7 p.m. and Melody found herself deafened from the shelling. A man approached cautiously with a white flag and informed them everyone but Donovan could leave in safety if they would leave their home and possessions and never return. For the safety of his daughter, Donovan agreed and surrendered his weapons, his fortune, his home, and his life before Melody could object. Melody and others were allowed to escape in an old, battered truck, with two flat tires. They drove away, not knowing what would become of Donovan. The last Donovan saw of Melody, she was crying hysterically, clawing at the back window of the truck. The last Melody saw of her father, he was surrounded by armed guards in military uniforms, his eyes fixed upon her. As soon as he was certain she was truly being set free, his chin rose defiantly, he smiled broadly, and turned to face his captors. Donovan was immediately arrested as an enemy of the new state of Zimbabwe. When asked how he had played, he said bloody guilty, with great feeling. Minutes later he was hanged on his own front porch. He was noble to the end, and as a last request asked to wax his mustache. The amazed soldiers watched as he carefully waxed and curled his great mustache, fitted the rope carefully around his own neck and avoided to avoid disturbing it, and nodded. He was buried in an unmarked grave in his own front yard, with an old smile, with an odd smile on his face. Melody learned of her father's fate a few days later. At the same time, she learned she had also been declared an enemy of the state. She was smuggled out of Zimbabwe on an airplane inside of a mailbag, taking with her great faith, bitter memories, and her violin. The day after Princess and Sam moved into their log castle, Sam's parents' home was burglarized, or rather, vandalized. The only evidence was a big diamond shape, scratched onto the mirror, hanging above the living room sofa. The diamond shape was carefully faceted and faced to look like a real diamond. The number 22 had been deeply etched beneath it. They all felt violated, and careful precautions were taken to preclude another break-in. The police were truly stumped by the weird vandalism, and the fact that the door had been professionally picked. There was nothing to suggest a motive. Robbery was ruled out as nothing had been taken. Sam and Princess returned home in deep silence. Neither needed to ask the other if they knew what the twenty-two represented. It was the exact weight of the diamond that they had attempted to transport through England many months ago. The fact that only a diamond could cut the carefully drawn image on glass and the number below it inconvertibly, incontrovertibly connected it to the lost gem. Suddenly, what was forgotten history was terrifyingly present. They had no one to whom they could turn for advice or protection. They were on their own, and what minutes before had been the number before 23 was now a looming, invisible threat in their lives. They both knew the reason his family's home had been vandalized. It was a warning, and it meant someone still wanted the stone. Princess found she loved being pregnant. From the beginning, she felt a deep sense of love and unity for the precious life she carried. As her tummy grew in size, her love grew to match. Each day, she became more anxious to finally meet the sweet spirit inside her. She would find herself talking to her unborn baby and then blush and stop in embarrassment. Sam came home unexpectedly one Friday afternoon and found her sitting in the rocking chair singing primary songs to her baby. Between each hymn, she stopped and told her baby the meaning of the words and how important it was to understand. Sam listened a long time as tears trickled down his cheeks. He felt as if he had quietly stepped into a celestial room of the temple and interrupted an angel singing to her child. How he valued that moment in years to come and how sweet its memory was in his soul. How long have you been standing there? Princess asked when she finally realized he had been listening to her. Minutes, he answered, then amended it to a lifetime. Princess blushed and turned away from him quickly. I didn't know you were there. You caught me being silly. I caught you being the perfect mother you were concerned about. Our baby is so lucky. How could you call yourself silly? I just love this baby so much, she said, rubbing her tummy tenderly. Sometimes my heart has to express it. I find that singing fulfills my need to express my love, but I I hadn't planned on you seeing me. I shall always treasure the memory of watching you sitting there singing softly. It is a moment of joy I would not want to have missed. Princess smiled softly at him and looked down with a tender twinkle in her eye. Baby, I want you to meet the person I love most in the whole world. His name is Samuel, and he's your father. He loves you just as much as I do, and one day he's going to teach you how to grow up strong in faith and goodness. Listen, my child, listen as mommy and daddy sing to you. Tenderly, quietly, she began to sing, I am a child of God, and he has sent me here. Sam started to sing with her, but memories toppled in upon him, and his voice broke. He had vivid memories of singing this precious song to his little brother the morning he had died. He had loved Jimmy with all his being, somehow singing it again to a child tugged at his heartstrings beyond endurance. He stood and walked to the big piano softly, ever so softly, and with every fiber of love that he possessed, he played the precious hymn as she sang the words to the child of their love. In some way unknown, unrecognized, and unexplainable, something healed deep within his soul. When the music came to the reverent end, he was enriched beyond his understanding. For Princess, this was a moment of sweet awakening. For the first time in her life, it became sweet and acceptable to be a mommy, She suddenly felt free to be a tender-hearted mother who could talk to her children in loving baby talk, quietly sing songs, read nursery rhymes, and express unabashed love. As the weeks progressed, the princess became unchained from the restraints of stuffy societal mores of the wealthy who had ever been her role models. In ways too important for her to understand, she evolved from a woman to a mother, and the change was liberating beyond expectation. Even though she did not understand the glorious change which had come over her, she did rejoice in its purity. Since their marriage, Sam had been too busy to give little thought to anything other than Princess and their growing business. It came as a shock then when his father asked if he would be, if he would come to the church. Jim, his father, had been serving as a bishop of the new Wasilla Ward since its creation two years ago. The Wasilla Ward boundaries extended from the city limits of Palmer to the outskirts of Fairbanks, over 300 miles to the north. The ward extended 30 miles to the south and 400 miles to east to Valdez, the new terminus of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. With nearly 12,000 square miles of area, their task was daunting. Sam wasn't sure if he should be suspicious or afraid as his father closed the door behind him and offered him a chair. Thanks for coming, Sam. I know you are wondering why I couldn't talk to you at home, but I wanted this to be official. I hope you don't mind. Sure, Dad, what do you need? It's not what I need, but what the Lord needs. The spirit began to burn in Sam's soul. He sat up straighter. As you know, my first counselor is moving away from Alaska. I have spent many days fasting and praying to know who the Lord has prepared to fill this position. Each time the answer came to me, I didn't have sufficient faith to accept it, I guess. Time after time, I have gone back to the Lord to seek a reaffirmation of his will. At last, the Lord has confirmed his will in such a way that I am left a bit chagrined for being so slow to respond. Sam didn't know what to say, but was beginning to feel uncomfortable suspense over his father's words. What is it, Dad? You're making me nervous. I am calling Brother Linus to be my counselor. As you know, he is presently my elders quorum president, so I am in need of a faithful priesthood holder to fulfill that position. I have submitted your name to the stake and received authority to ask you to be my new elders quorum president. There will be an official call by a member of the stake presidency, of course, but since you're my son, I asked if I could tell you myself and was given permission to do so. Mm-hmm. Sam's shoulders relaxed. Wow, for a moment I thought you were going to ask me to be your counselor. I was wondering how people would react to that. They would probably think you did it because I was your son, not because of it was who the Lord wanted. I think that's the very reason I had been so slow to hearken to his words. I wanted to be sure this call was correct. Now that I know that it is, I am anxious to work with you. Whether or not the people accept you in this position is up to them, and largely up to how you labor in your calling. It is an odd situation. I don't think I've ever heard of a son being an Elder's Quorum President to his father. Me either. Well, will you do it? Yes, certainly. However, I want to talk to Princess first. I already know how she'll feel, but let me talk to her, and I'll let you know. I understand. I'm proud of you, son, and I know you will make a faithful elders president. If you accept, I'd like to put you to work immediately. You could be set apart by a member of the state presidency this coming Sunday. Thank you for being a faithful member and a wonderful son. Sam had forgotten what it felt like to have the mantle of authority settle upon his shoulders. On his mission, his authority had been limited, and the burden was light to be borne. The mantle of responsibility of being the elders president was a burden of considerable consequence. His first task was to find two brethren to serve as counselors. He studied the list of elders and was dismayed to find that only, that out of nearly 90 names, all but six of them were inactive. Of those six, all but one held responsible positions in the ward. The six came to church but refused to accept any positions. Most of the 90 had no addresses or phone numbers. They were merely names on a list. His He prayed... Uh, He prayerfully selected two brethren he had never met, drove to their homes, and succeeded in calling them to be his counselors. From the day of their calling, both brethren remained stalwart in the church and faithfully labored with him in the daunting task of creating a brotherhood from a list of unwilling names. The rebel soldiers had been ordered to let all leave except Donovan and his family, In their haste to capture the man responsible for leading the retaliatory raid in their own villages, the generals had not identified Melody as Donovan's daughter. She had moved out nearly two years prior, and her presence was unexpected. Several of those attacking their home were former employees, who recognized her but said nothing, fearing implied guilt by prior association. Her release and subsequent escape from the country cost at least three of these former so-called friends and one officer their lives. Their orders was to search all those leaving the farm to ensure they were taking nothing valuable with them. When it came Melody's turn to be searched, their attention turned from finding valuables to having their hands on her body. As repugnant as their rough groping was, it was totally ineffective, and she left with a small collection of gems embedded in a plastic clip in her hair. It was not a lot, but it would be sufficient to see her to England. Donovan had had many friends in South Africa, mostly people who had profited substantially from his frenzied purchases during the years of his wealth. She quietly contacted these until she found one willing to help her, for a price, of course. Melody booked a passage on a steamer. She did not have a passport and could not pass through customs at any airport. Discreet inquiries found a captain of a small freighter who would take anyone, anywhere, for a price. Once he learned... She was a refugee from Rhodesia. His sympathies were aroused, and he accommodated her comfortably on the long voyage. He, however, did not lower his price. The passage to England was uneventful, except that she had nothing but her violin and the clothing she wore. She was forced to wash her dress in the sink of the cabin and let it dry before she could once again emerge. During the two-week voyage, she spent many sweaty days cooped up inside her cabin waiting for her long black dress to dry in the humid heat. Her arrival in England was unceremonious. She simply walked off the gangway and down a narrow street. There was no one there to meet her, no one could contact, no one she could contact and nowhere to go. It was true that Marcia was in England, but Melody was not even sure what city she was in. Since Marcia had joined the church, she had moved into a new apartment closer to the chapel which had been some 30 miles away in a different city. Which city, Melody could not even guess. Melody's only money was a few South African rand. Even in a large bank, it was difficult to exchange rand for pounds. No bank anywhere would exchange less than 100 rand, and she was far less than that. They were, for all intents and purposes, worthless pieces of paper. When she had asked the captain of the ship to exchange them for any amount of local currency, he had laughed at her and told her there was "'Better ways for a beautiful young woman to make money. "'If you know what I mean, Missy,' he said with, as he winked at her. "'More than merely leaving, she had fled from his ship in disgust. "'Melody's own, only real advantage was in the simple fact "'that she had landed in England in the morning hours. "'She had eaten her last meal aboard ship a few hours ago "'and would not be in desperate need of either food or lodging "'for most of the day. "'It was not much, but it would have to be enough.' The ship had landed her in the port of Swansea, Wales, a sizable city, yet not a usual destination for ships bearing passengers. As a result, the waterfront was a narrow strip of piers and warehouses jammed against the ocean. It was an ideal location for anyone without a passport because there were no custom agents within 300 miles. A few blocks inland, all trace of the waterfront vanished into a dirty slum. Melody kept to the busiest street she could find and felt very grateful she was not making this foot journey at night. Many people stared, a few asked questions. Several even offered directions. Not a soul threatened her. She walked swiftly toward the busiest part of the city, not sure what she planned to do, but compelled to escape the squalor of this section of the city. In a short time, she began passing small shops, clothing stores, and other signs of culture. By the time she found the main business district, she was very tired, thirsty, hungry, and disheartened. She had been able to keep her courage up while she had a goal, but now she was without a clue as to what she should do. The young, frightened refugee sat on a bench near a small park and kicked off her shoes. Her feet ached from the long, hot walk. She watched the bustle of the big city and studied the faces of the people walking by. Though fearful, she was very glad to be safely among people who had no intention of either exploiting her desperation, capitalizing on her beauty, or arresting her for her political leanings. While she rested, Melody took stock of her assets. They were pitifully few. She had nothing, knew no one, and had no passport, no work papers, no money, and no way of getting any. She was unwilling to prostitute her body for money, and could not think of anything else she had except her violin. Thinking of the precious instrument brought her a concern, and she opted, opened it for the first time since boarding the ship. She had packed it with several bags of table salt to keep it dry. These she pulled from the case and set aside. She lifted the instrument and turned it over to inspect it. Thoughts of having to sell or pawn it filled her with sadness. The afternoon sun reflected off the highly polished surface in rich reds and browns. When she was satisfied... It was in perfect condition. She plucked at the strings to satisfy herself that they had not grown limp from moisture. Do you know any Mozart? She heard a man's voice ask her. She looked up to see an old, kindly-faced gentleman leaning on a cane. He was not much taller than she and spoke with what seemed to be a German or Swiss accent. She quickly concluded his question was completely innocent and meant nothing more than actual words he spoke. I do, she replied. Then, as if struck by her instructor's baton she suddenly realized what he was asking he wanted to hear some mozart not just learn whether she knew any she stood slowly looked around self-consciously and quietly tightened the strings until they were in pitch she suspended her bow over their strings without any sure idea what she would play at that moment a lively gavotte by mozart well-loved and off-played came to mind it was Too showy, she thought, and tried to force it from her mind, but it persisted. Without any other thought than to quickly get this over with, she drew the bow quickly downward. The music danced out into the park, its clarion tones an obvious quality, apparently to everyone who heard. As she played, others passers-by walked up slowly. Initially, she played simply to fulfill his request. But shortly, she was playing for the simple joy of the music and for the great peace it filtered into her soul. The gvat ended happily, and people clapped. Melody opened her eyes to see about ten people applauding. She curtsied politely, which looked very old-fashioned in England, and brought a chuckle of delight from those watching. The old man who had requested the piece stepped forward and dropped a five-pound note into her open case. She looked at it in surprise and almost handed it back. She didn't want him to pay her for her music. She had accommodated his request as a favor. As... If he had just purchased a ticket to a concert, he requested another piece by Strauss, the beautiful Emperor Waltz. It was a piece she had played many times, though never as a solo. However, it was well within her range of talent to improvise all as she played. She played with fervor, and as a man and woman began waltzing on the grass, others dropped in paper money and coins and made their request. She had so much fun playing for such a happy and appreciative audience that she had not noticed her case filling with bills and coins. The older gentleman who had first asked her to play stepped forward and stacked most of the bills, leaving a few in the case. He folded them carefully and handed them to her. Never leave too many in the case and always just leave a few. Come here during lunchtime and afternoon to early evening only. Never stay after seven in the evening. There's a clean little hotel called the Royal Roost, several blocks north on Queens Avenue, with a little cafe in the lobby. I'll come check on you tomorrow. So, saying, he bowed slightly, took one step backward, turned, and walked quickly away. Though the walking stick clicked on the pavement, it seemed as if he hardly needed it. His instructions surprised her, yet she was very grateful for the advice and did exactly as he suggested. The lunch hour ended shortly thereafter, and people simply stopped walking in the park. She counted her little pile of bills and was amazed to find over 100 pounds in various notes. With a racing heart, she walked north and found the hotel and the cafe. She ate a simple meal, hired a small room, and fell onto her bed in exhaustion. That evening, Melody played from 5 to 7, exactly as the old man had suggested. During that time, she made another 126 pounds. That evening in the park was alive with jugglers, mimes, musicians, pundits of politics, and hucksters of religion she was in good company and enjoyed the fact that she was one of many doing the same thing the following day the old gentleman reappeared as promised he paid her another five pounds after she had played several of his requests he nodded smiled and limped away without a word that evening she started early eager to find the best spot she played with extra fervor and found her take growing larger When 7 o'clock came, people were still listening, and she played on till nearly 8. After finishing the final number, Melody noticed that at least half of those listening were ragged young men who were looking at her in the wrong way. She quickly packed her instrument and started away. For a moment, she was lost in the evening rush of people, but when she turned onto Queen's Avenue, they were there before her. She turned around and found herself facing more of them. As the mantle of his office fell upon Sam, something unexpected occurred. It was the beginnings of the sure understanding of the Lord's will concerning his quorum. Sam began to exercise himself in obedience to the Spirit's direction, and small miracles began to occur. After all, it was the Lord's priesthood, and however essential his calling as elders quorum president might be, it was subservient to he whose priesthood it was. As he obeyed, Sam's faith grew in the Lord's willingness to use him as a servant, And the miracles followed. Friday evening, found Sam driving home from work. It was late and he was tired. It was his habit to visit a different member of the ward each day on his drive home from work. Even though their ward area was immense, those for whom Sam actually had addresses lived within an hour's drive from his home. His ambition was to visit a new member of his quorum every day on the way home from work. However, because he was especially tired this evening, he had convinced himself to go straight home. The long shadows of summer were warming the verdant green landscape as Sam made his way home. He drove slowly, enjoying the idea of coming home an hour earlier and surprising Princess. As he approached the turnoff to a small subdivision, he felt a sudden urging to turn in. He signaled, slowed, and drove into the subdivision. Under the urging of the spirit, he turned left, then right, and then left into a driveway. He was pleased to see the name of a family he recognized. He had not previously known where they had lived. This was a pleasant visit, since they were active in the church and stalwarts in the ward. As he approached the home, it felt cold and dark, as if someone had left a window open to a winter breeze. He rang the bell and waited. When she finally answered, it was with an ironic tone in her voice. "'Oh, Brother Mahoy,' Sister Williams said, "'I'm surprised to see you here. What can I do for you?' "'Sister Williams, I'm here because the Lord sent me. May I come in?' She hesitated. "'Well, sure. Brother Williams is in the living room,' she said, gesturing in that direction. Sam walked the three steps into the living room to find Brother Williams sitting on the sofa hunched over. He stood slowly as Sam entered and came around the coffee table to shake his hand. There was an atmosphere of tension and sadness in the air, which chilled Sam. "'President Mahoy, to what do we owe this visit?' "'Here, take a seat,' he said, pointing toward a large chair.' You owe it to the Lord, Brother Williams. I was on my way home and was directed to swing in. You'll have to tell me why I'm here. Brother Williams glanced at his wife and then back at the couch, resuming the coward position Sam had seen upon first entering. Well, Sister Williams began, perhaps it's just as well. We sent the kids away for the evening so we could have time to ourselves. We've been sitting here discussing all afternoon our divorce. An electric moment came and went. I see, Sam replied in surprise then suddenly was filled with the Spirit, energized with truth in the mantle of his office. Are you aware? I, uh, As you are aware, I am your elders quorum president and have priesthood stewardship over your family. I know that sometimes couples split up, and sometimes it's not only justifiable, but also necessary. I don't know what brought you to this dilemma, and don't mean to be judgmental in any way. However, since the Lord interrupted my journey home to come visit you at this critical moment, how do you suppose he plans to view your divorce how does he how do you suppose he views your plans to divorce it was a startling question and sister williams lowered her head her eyes pooling with tears sam thought her reaction was one of sadness but quickly changed to estimate that estimate to defiance and frustration brother williams straightened as if a new hope had suddenly entered him i would say he doesn't want us to split up he said with conviction why do you say that sam asked "'Well, he wouldn't send you over here to urge us to divorce or to help us break up. "'It could only be that he disapproves.' "'What do you think, Sister William?' Sam asked quietly. "'She seemed stunned into silence. Her mouth moved, but no words came out. "'The spirit moved within him, and he knew it had been her idea, "'and upon her insistence they were considering divorce. "'She wanted out and was reluctant to have that plan aborted.' Sister Williams, do you mind if I ask a question or two? Sam asked. Without looking up, she shook her head from side to side. Do you love the Lord? Her head snapped up, then lowered slowly. With fervor, she said, I do. Do you think he loves you? Oh yes, I know he does, she replied with equal emphasis. If he asked you to give up his life for him, would you do it? In a heartbeat, she said, and she meant it. Would your eternal reward be better or worse for having given your all to obey his will? Better by far, she replied. Let me ask you again, in the light of his having sent me here to your home, what is his attitude toward your divorce? I think he is repelled and sickened by the idea, she said. The intensity of her answer surprised both Sam and Brother Williams. Regardless of whether you understand why... Are you willing to have faith in his love for you and obey him in this matter of your divorce? Do you really think we can be happy? She asked pointedly. That isn't the question. The question is one of obedience. Even so, do you trust him? Do you really think he would send you down a path designed to make you unhappy? Sam asked with tenderness. She did not answer his question. Sam stood, walked to the kitchen, picked up a wooden chair and sat it near the sofa. "'Sister Williams, I have a blessing for you, if you'll receive it.' "'She looked startled, then stood and walked slowly to the chair. "'She glanced up at him before she sat, tears streaked down her cheeks. "'Her face was sober, resigned, and fearful. "'Sam placed his hands on her head and waited for the glow of the spirit to fill him. "'After a long moment it came upon him so powerfully it gave him a sense of great courage. "'It took him a moment to recognize that it was courage he was feeling.' This was the second time he had felt this empowering emotion in response to the Holy Spirit. The first time had been on that train in the bushlands of Botswana, expecting to die at any moment. Sister Eleanor Williams, in the name of Jesus Christ and by his holy priesthood, I give you a, bla- a blessing this day according to the will of God and under the direction of his Holy Spirit. For your sake and as a witness unto you, Of the source of your anger and adverse will, I rebuke the power of evil within you and command it to depart. Sister Williams, you are our precious daughter of our Heavenly Father, beloved of him, and glorious in his sight. All God's children, with the exception of Christ himself, have at times succumbed to the influences of darkness. This is not an indictment against your goodness or an indication of your worth, but is a result of poor choices on your part. You have long listened to the anger within you until you have accepted this anger as your own. Yet you are not an angry spirit, and have been tricked into thinking of your anger as justified or worthy, at times even righteous. Feel the liberty of being free, and rejoice in the purity of your native sweetness. It has been many years since you last felt it in this pure and strong. I admonish you that from this day and on throughout your life, that you rebuke this dark influence whenever it presents itself. Never again yield to its fury, for the choice is yours. Without doubt, and according to divine will, it will return. Satan and his angels have a divinely decreed right to infest our minds and hearts. Your angler will return after a brief absence caused by this blessing. But know that it is within your power to keep it from taking residence in your soul again. The choice was, is, and forever will be yours. Your lack of happiness has nothing to do with your marriage, but is a function of your yielding to the influences of darkness." Awaken your spirit, put on your beautiful garments, adorn your spirit with flowers and sweet perfume, and go forth henceforth in the glow of your pre-mortal beauty. For great you were and great you are, and glorious shall be your reward hereafter if you heed the counsel of this day. I seal upon you this blessing according to divine guidance and according to the stewardship of my office in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sam hadn't realized until he said the word amen that she was sobbing. She stood to find her husband standing before her with open arms. She fell into them with a sob. Sam heard her whimperings whispered apologies as Brother Williams soothed his wife with words of love. Brother Williams, Sam said at the appropriate moment, it's your turn. For just a moment, Brother Williams looked surprised as if there was no need. Yet there was much power in the room and he nodded in submission and took the chair. Brother Williams, in the name of Jesus Christ and according to his will, I also give you a blessing, a promise, and a warning. You are not blameless in the darkness that has overcome your home. This is your stewardship, and you have walked away in fear and resignation when you should have been fearless in doing that which is right. You have let your fear of your wife's anger drive you from your position to preside in love over this home. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to reclaim it. It is your right to preside and you must act in that responsibility in order to be exalted. Even though this anger originated from your wife, your response to it has been far less valiant than it should have been. You are a noble son of God and a spirit of intelligence and unusual faith. Your love for your wife extends beyond this world and has literally existed for millennia. Had you allowed your timidity and fear to end this love relationship that has existed so long and has been a delight to your Heavenly Father, you would have not found true happiness in this world, nor in the world to come. My visit here today has been as much to save you from this eternal blunder as to save your love from destruction. Awake, arise, and stand in the office where you have been called. Love your wife without reservation or qualification. Expect nothing and give everything. Teach your children. By precept and example, perform your church duties faithfully, and you shall open your eyes one day in the celestial kingdom of our God, surrounded by your glorified wife and children and loved ones, who shall for an eternity rise up and call you blessed. I seal upon you these blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Sam raised his hands from Brother William's head and walked directly to the door. They did not notice him leave as they held one another and wept. Sam basked in the glow of the Spirit for days after. It was the first time he had experienced the pure joy of perfect service. The distinction had never occurred to him before, always, before he had done the best he could. This time, for the first time, he had done precisely as Jesus Christ would have done had he been there himself. He had acted with absolute honor and rendered that service which is perfect and eternal. Had Christ himself visited this troubled family, he would have done precisely the same. For the first time, Sam's service had truly been in the name of Jesus Christ, and it thrilled him beyond comprehension. Princess, can we talk a minute? Sam asked as he wrapped his arms around her waist from behind. They were just finishing cleaning up the kitchen. Sam enjoyed working in the kitchen with her, and this kind of surprised him, because he had hated it as a child. But there were two great paybacks for helping Princess. First, he got to be around her that much longer. Second, no matter how many times he helped, she never seemed to expect it and was always truly grateful. Love to, she said as she dried her hands. They walked to the sofa facing the piano and sat that their knees were touching. Sam was thoughtful for a moment before speaking. I learned something today. I want to share it with you while it's fresh on my mind. "'Tell me about it,' she replied with interest. "'Well, I made a stop at a member's home "'under the direction of the Holy Spirit. "'It was wonderful. "'You've done that before,' she observed. "'I know how hard you try to be completely obedient "'to the promptings you receive.' "'Well, I do most of the time,' he said. "'But tonight something was different. "'It was almost as if I was a spectator there. "'I went in, and the Spirit was so strong "'that I knew exactly what to do and what to say. "'I gave them both blessings, and the words were profound.' And I know will be honored by the Lord. The startling thing is that as I was leaving, I had this overwhelming sense of power from the Lord. I've never felt such power. What kind of power do you mean? It was the kind of power that comes from absolute faith. If God were, would have commanded me to move a mountain, I would have simply turned and ordered it to move. And it would have. That's the thing that's so startling. I know for an absolute fact that it would have moved. If he would have told me to raise the dead, or stop the world from turning, or to call down a pillar of fire, it would have happened. I've never felt faith like that. It was absolute. Wow, she said as she placed a hand on his knee. I've never felt anything like that. Until tonight, I hadn't either. But actually, that isn't the part I wanted to talk about. There's something better, she asked, a little astonished. I don't think better, just important. You see, I know why it happened. I know why this absolute faith came to me. I'd like to hear what it was. I want to try it. It was because for the briefest moment in time, I was absolutely obedient. I had placed my life, my will, my whole being into his hands. I have flawlessly obeyed every prompting I have received for weeks. And as a result of walking in the spirit so closely day and night for weeks, I finally arrived at the point where I could do precisely as Christ would have done, had he been there himself. Princess laid her hand atop his and looked into his eyes. I think I understand what you're saying. It's kind of like becoming so obedient that your acts actually become identical with what the Savior would do if he were there himself. Sam nodded, leaned back in the sofa and crossed his legs loosely. After a moment, he said, that's exactly the way I see it. It was fantastic, Princess. It was the most spiritually fulfilling experience of my life. I have finally tasted the sweet fruits of service, and it is sweet beyond my ability to comprehend it. It has filled me with an overwhelming desire to have this blessing again and again. I have no doubt that you will, she replied with surety. I hope so. The interesting thing is how difficult it seemed to achieve, and how many many small obediences it took to qualify for this great blessing. However, now that I have experienced it, it seems so natural and beautiful and simple. It makes me wonder why I took so long getting to this point. He studied his hands for a moment before continuing. It occurs to me that this is the fullest meaning of the phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting thought, I bet it is, Princess agreed. She loved having these conversations with Sam, not only for the spiritual blessings that they were to her, but because she got to experience the most profoundly significant part of her spouse. She did everything she could think of to make these discussions last longer. We say in the name of Jesus Christ for about every act we perform in this church. That's true, Sam responded thoughtfully. He interlaced his fingers behind his head and stared at the ceiling. I'm sure the way it's used in the church is completely acceptable to Heavenly Father, but it makes me wonder if that phrase doesn't actually carry a much heavier burden of meaning. And if it does, it makes me wonder if we shouldn't be seeking to fulfill its higher implications. Sam's voice took on a tone of wonderment. The way we use it, it's almost like saying, Okay, that's all I wanted to say, rather than, I have just spoken by revelation, and the words I used were from Jesus Christ himself. There's a big difference between these two. Princess glanced at her husband, and then returned her gaze to the highly polished side of the grand piano. She could see their combined reflections in the curve of the glossy blackness. Their reflections almost seemed to merge into a single image. It felt symbolic to her at that moment. I remember wondering about this very thing when I was taking the missionary lessons. Can't remember the missionary's name who taught me, but maybe he made a comment that may be valid. You can never tell what a missionary might say in the heat of a teaching frenzy, Sam said with a tone of feigned cynicism. True, so true, she agreed in mock seriousness. Anyway, That nameless missionary said that many things were true on various levels. He said that even in the church, things were understood on different levels, and each level could be true. Even the child who stands up and closes the talk he read in the name of Jesus Christ, even when he didn't understand it, a word that he just read is still speaking in Christ's name. I believe that, Sam allowed. I'm just concerned that it has taken me so many years to gain a higher understanding of this meaning of these words. In reality, to hear someone truly correctly say in the name of Jesus Christ at the end of his talk should literally send chills of spiritual ecstasy up our spines. We should correctly interpret the benediction to mean I have spoken as Christ would have had he been here himself. To correctly make such a statement would be a profound effect upon every listener. Princess scooted toward him and laid her head on his chest. "'He wrapped an arm around her and kissed the crown of her head. "'I get those sometimes,' she said softly. "'What?' "'Thrills of spiritual ecstasy up my spine,' she replied just as softly. "'Really? When?' "'He laid his cheek on the top of her head. "'Whenever I think of spending eternity with you.'